As you probably know, we have been in a conversation over many, many weeks now on some of the big questions that people ask as they explore the subject of God and faith and religion and spirituality. And uh, we come back today to one of the most significant questions that people inquire about. And, and that has to do with the reliability of this book I hold in my hands. If there's one conviction that unites Christians across uh, generations and across time and space, it is the belief that this book is worth our time. It's worth reading, it's worth reflecting upon, it's worth trusting with our lives and implementing uh, its guidance in our daily journey. This book is central to what it means to be a follower of God in Jesus Christ. I love how the psalmist puts this conviction themselves in this marvelous uh, language. Oh, how I love your law, the psalmist writes. I meditate on it all day long. For your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. In other words, your word gives me a competitive advantage in the world as I face obstacles and challenges that come my way. I have more insight than all my teachers. In fact, some of the people that are instructing me in school and other places don't have the insight I have because I have your word uh, in my life. For I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders. There are people out there who are older than me who aren't as wise as I am. If they haven't delved into the word as I have is what uh, the psalmist is saying here. For I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. I don't even have a desire to go down those paths anymore because your word has so informed me. In fact, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, that is high praise indeed, isn't it? I'm not sure I have ever heard a more glowing or read a more glowing review of a book than that particular uh, review that we've just uh, heard together. The question I guess I want to pose today is why? Why be so devoted to reading and, and implementing the call of God's word? Why be so uh, devoted to meditating on and obeying what the scriptures say? Is the Bible even reliable? I mean, why trust it? That's a question that a lot of people uh, who do not check their brains at the door when they approach religion uh, are asking, why should I trust this book more than I might any other source of authority I could uh, come in contact with? And as I've thought about that subject myself, I think that that generalized question often boils down to three uh, more foundational kinds of questions that I want to explore with you today. The first of those questions is, is the Bible's text itself dependable? Is, the, is what we read here actually on the pages of this book uh, truly dependable? 
Every single year, uh, it seems, there's some new uh, television special or magazine article or, or blogosphere comment that suggests that what we have in this book is a distorted manuscript. It's a, it's a self-serving kind of work that bears very little relevance for life in our times. The implication very often is that we cannot trust the accuracy of the Bible texts because they were either made up altogether or they suffered so many changes and distortions over time in translation that we have very little idea what was actually originally said in this book what Jesus actually originally said, others originally said. Maybe you've wondered that yourself. How many of you have ever played the game telephone? You whisper into somebody's ear a message, they turn whisper into somebody else's ear, and as it goes down the chain, the message changes so dramatically as to be almost unrecognizable at the end. So many people wonder, is that what we're dealing with when it comes to this book? Well, as much as these kinds of theories are offered as surprisingly new insights uh, every several years or so, the reality is people have been grappling with that particular question for centuries. And, and in fact, there has been a tremendous um, awareness all through the history of the church that the Bible is a compilation of what are called oral traditions. That is, long before these things were written down, they were stories that were told. People passed on uh, to their neighbors, to their children, the children to their children. The, the, the sayings of the great prophets, the history of the people of Israel, the story of the creation, the words and actions of Jesus, they were verbally transmitted before they were ever literarily transmitted. And, and, and because we live in a world that's about writing and print media, it's difficult for us to understand just how reliable oral tradition can be. In fact, those who study oral traditions uh, that uh, persevere in, even in certain cultures today around the world are often amazed by the remarkable consistency and reliability with which the message gets translated from person to person and then from generation to generation. And that reality was demonstrated rather decisively uh, within the past 50 years or so when there was a remarkable discovery made in the uh, Qumran area of ancient uh, Israel, Palestine uh, area. Uh, there, there was a very dry area of that landscape down by the uh, Dead Sea and a little boy was going, uh, still shepherd, shepherding in that land as people still do. Uh, he had lost one of his goats or one of his sheep and he wondered if maybe it had fallen down that hole over there. And the boy went over to the hole and he picked up a rock and he hurled a rock down into the hole thinking he would get a sound out of the animal that was down there if it were down there. And instead of hearing a bah, he heard a clink. And he took another rock and he threw it down into the hole again and he heard an even larger shattering sound like the sound of breaking pottery. And that encounter led to the discovery of what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. It led to the discovery of an ancient treasure trove of, of manuscripts hidden away, stored away against the elements in clay jars that dated all the way back to the first century A.D. and before. And suddenly we had access now to the very first message in the telephone line game. 
we had access to the original words of, of significant portions of the Old Testament scriptures. And as those words were translated, we were shocked to discover, many of the skeptics who were looking at these manuscripts were shocked to discover that there had not been the distortions that they expected, but that the words of the scriptural text that you can hold in your hand, at least as close as English can get to the original Hebrew and Greek, were remarkably aligned with those original manuscripts. Barring a few spelling errors, a few minor grammatical changes that, that did in no way alter the message of God's word. Which is to say, you can pick up that Bible that is in front of you right now, or you can find on your phone, and you can discover in multiple translations today, and be extremely confident that you are encountering, again, as close as an English translation can get to the original, the word of God, the original the original message of the scriptures. Now, I, I'm conscious that that is not the only concern that people have. Uh, sometimes people are skeptical about the accuracy of the original information. They're, 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 they question the, the reliability of even the stories we are given about Jesus. How can we trust those histories, they say? I mean, these these things were finally written down so much later than the actual events they describe. And I'm always amused by that because I go back to my college experience. When I was at Yale, I took a, a really marvelous course uh, in ancient Greek history taught by a professor named Donald Kagan, one of the best teachers I've ever had. And in the course of the study, we looked at the, the manuscripts that were the uh, foundation of our understanding of what ancient Greece was. We looked at the histories of Greece written by people like uh, Herodotus and Thucydides. And, and um, I learned at that particular time that these particular histories that were written were what we completely trusted uh, in our understanding of the ancient Greek period. Those histories were widely accepted as reliable, although they were written more than a thousand years after the events they purport to describe. A thousand years went by. And just little scraps of that history and oral tradition was all we had until finally Herodotus and Thucydides write this down, and now we completely trust those histories. They are believed, though there are only eight copies of either history to compare against one another, for possible discrepancies in the story. Similarly, historians have little problem trusting the narrative of, say, Caesar's Gallic War. That narrative was written 950 years after the events of that particular war. And, and we only have 10 comparison copies of that history, again, to, to check against each other for, for accuracy. Yet the stories of the New Testament were not written a thousand years later, but a mere 30 years after the events that they describe. And we have 20,000 manuscripts to compare against each other as to their accuracy, to look for discrepancies. It is interesting to me how different people come to define the word reliability. It's why I trust this book as much as I could possibly trust any of the other histories that I've received from ancient times. There's even more evidence, however, for the trustworthiness of this book that I'm, I've given you thus far. Last week I shared with you how 
um, more than 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah or the life and person of the Messiah were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, in the details of the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, a stunning, mathematically impossible correspondence between uh, predictions written thousands and or hundreds of years before and the actual events of the life of Jesus. I didn't get around last week to tell you about the hundreds of other biblical prophecies uh, about other things that have proved true or the vast and continuing wealth of archaeological finds that confirm the reliability of the scriptures. I mean, it's every single year more and more things are dug up in, in Bible lands that confirm the people, the events, the minute details of what the scripture has described all along. And if we haven't found it yet, I often think, just wait a while. They're going to dig it up and we're going to discover yet more that, that it gives us confidence that what we read here is the truth. Uh, I'm struck by a recent find of an ossuary uh, near Jerusalem, uh, a, a a, basically a cave, a, a tomb, in which was discovered, and this was a, a second century um, burial site. In other words, a hundred years after Jesus, um, they, somebody had been buried. And this person it had been executed during the second century. And, um, and as they studied the remains, uh, the skeletal remains of this individual, it became clear that the person had been executed in precisely the same manner as Jesus had been crucified. That the detail that we have in the first century of the, of the way Jesus died um, was verified in minute detail uh, in this second century uh, find. Uh, for Christians, I think, maybe one of the most meaningful evidences of the reliability of this word comes from an approach to biblical studies that involves the scrutinizing of the language of the Bible. Uh, the study of the syntax and the rhetorical forms in which the Bible is written. Chances are you've got somebody in your life who talks a certain way. Maybe it's your mom or your dad or your sister or your brother or a good friend or your boss or some other influencer, an aunt or uncle. But, 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 but you would recognize their pattern of speech, their way of telling stories, the turns of phrase they frequently use. You'd recognize it anywhere. For you, they're just unique in the way they go about uh, communicating themselves, expressing their encounter with life. Well, one of the foremost researchers who study those kinds of particular patterns of speaking and communicating is a man by the name of Joachim Jeremias. And Jeremias has identified in the words that were attributed in the New Testament to Jesus a particular way of speaking, a particular way of telling stories, a particular way of, of uh, turning phrases, uh, a, a whole manner of, of expression that is um, unique to Jesus. And, and when I say unique to Jesus, this is the amazing part. That person I mentioned in your life probably is not entirely unique in the way they speak, meaning that you could find other people in the culture around them that kind of talk in similar terms. The thing about Jesus, the thing about the pattern of speaking that Jesus does is that he tells stories 
And he has these aphorisms and turns of phrase that are found nowhere else in ancient literature. Which is to say that, that there's a uniqueness to the voice of Jesus. In fact, Jeremias coins a phrase about this. He calls it the ipsissima vox, the the, literally the very voice of Jesus. It's as if we are meeting in the pages of the New Testament a voice from beyond the culture of Israel, from another time and place that, 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 that could not have simply been made up by locals because there was no such voice speaking in these ways in their time. And it gives to me, at least, as one person that doesn't want to check my brain at the door, a lot of confidence that when I read the parables of Jesus, and when I hear him say, verily, verily, I say unto you, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, I believe I'm meeting a voice from beyond time that yet speaks to us in every single time. And I trust the reliability of the scriptural account even more. You know... I've also come to see over time that what troubles some of us is not so much the reliability of the texts themselves, what, what we read here, as the reliability of the God that the texts describe. And for a lot of people, the authority of the Bible are, is hard to trust because of the particular picture of God that we meet in these pages, or seem to me. Renowned atheist Richard Dawkins, for example, argues that the Bible presents a picture of God a God who is, and I quote, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And, and Dawkins thinks the Bible's a work of fiction. Um, and, and he says, this God is jealous and proud of it. He is petty, unjust, and unforgiving control freak. He's misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, and genocidal. You can tell how he feels about the God of the Bible. His good friend, uh, Sam Harris, in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, goes on to quote extensive passages from the Bible that, taken in one light, seem to suggest that the God of the Bible delights in dashing Babylonian baby heads on rocks, that he loves to, to put whole Canaanite villages to the torch, men, women, and children, that he's just fine with slaughtering innocents for the sake of his little tribe. That's the picture that some have drawn as they read particular accounts in the Old Testament. So what do Christians say to that? I mean, what do you do, what do, you do with that? Well, uh, I will t simply say that, that as I've read my way through the Old Testament, uh, there are places I wince. My dad uh, was on a, a long vacation last year, and he read his way through the entire Bible cover to cover, and one of the first things he wanted to talk about with me was, what about those passages? What about that God? Well, it seems to me we have to grant that there are passages in the Bible that strike us in the words of Richard Dawkins himself as just plain weird. Okay, they're there. Uh, I've sometimes personally struggled with some of those passages. Uh, there's this period in the conquest uh, of the land of Canaan in which God, speaking through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, apparently gives the Israelites the command to destroy the Canaanites completely to wipe them from the face of the earth. Now, it's difficult for me, coming from a 21st century perspective, living in this beautiful land, to imagine the existence of a people so utterly wicked 
that, that a, a, a loving God would actually choose to eradicate them from the earth. Uh, but that apparently was indeed the case when it came to the Canaanites. As Deuteronomy 12 and 31 reports, it was routine practice for the Canaanites to, quote, burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. They would um, take their precious children and they would throw them into the bonfire for something as routine as a building dedication. Uh, this was the, just the reality of the bloodthirsty um, culture and religion of the Canaanites. Uh, there are moments in biblical history, and we can't sidestep them, when God very obviously takes extremely harsh and very costly action to spare the world the expansion of a much harsher and a far more insidious kind of evil. Uh, I think we recognize in our times that um, the elimination of ISIS or of the Nazis was not a tea party, right? It was not a pretty affair. Um, those who who were part of those kinds of, of exercises of, of repelling and destroying evil are often even traumatized by that experience. I doubt that many who walked through Dachau uh, or Auschwitz or who watched the, the atrocities that ISIS did on some of the videos that circulated uh, around the internet, I, I doubt that any of us who saw that would question that extreme force is sometimes necessary and was necessary in those instances to eradicate a much more dangerous kind of cancer from the world. Uh, we know sometimes that the damage that even attacking cancer in our bodies requires. Um, so there are indeed some very tough moments, uh, tough moments of discipline that are recorded in the scriptures. And when reading the Bible in its entirety, you're going to come across those. But if you commit yourself to reading the Bible in its entirety, truly, not just spot-checking this stuff, but really committing yourself to this word, what you're going to be struck by far more is the lavish mercy and kindness and patience and compassion of God. Uh, some of those new atheists are always saying that God is this jealous, vindictive, mean, mean God. Well, <laughs> why then does he take Adam and Eve, who have been given a command, just don't take, don't steal that, don't take that one thing, or on that day you will surely die. Why, when they do it, does God actually not choose to kill them and actually chooses to clothe them as they make their way out of the garden? Why does the Bible picture God as the one who continues to send the nourishing rains and the, the warming sun upon the just and the unjust, the good and the bad alike? Some skeptics will say that the God of the Bible is this xenophobic tribal deity. He's only for the people of Israel. And if you take certain passages out of context, you might come to the same conclusion. But when you read the whole counsel of Scripture, you're struck again and again by God's expansive concern for all people of every single tribe. He establishes Israel actually to be a light and a blessing to the nations, though Israel struggled to actually fulfill that mandate. Uh, he sends, as we were recently reminded in a series last fall, that he sends his reluctant prophet Jonah to go to the Assyrians, a particularly barbaric people. Why? Not to destroy them, but to try and save them, to, to, to save them. This is not the behavior of a xenophobic tribal deity. Christianity has found a home among more nations, among more tribes and people on more continents than any other world religion, because at its heart is this expansive concern for everybody. For all people. 
Some critics will point to the story of Abraham and Isaac, and they'll say, look, that's how bloodthirsty God is. He would force somebody to, to sacrifice their own child. Well, you'll remember, if you read the story, he stopped Abraham from sacrificing his own child. And the entire story was actually a prophetic pointer to a coming day when God would actually sacrifice himself for the sake of the world, even those who put him on a cross and rejoiced in his agony. It is hard to read the scriptures in their entirety or to understand the passages in their cultural context and conclude that the God of this book is a cruel tyrant. He is certainly not a pushover. He is holy. He, he, is, he is in pursuit of justice. He has specific aims in history. God is not Santa Claus. He's not some indulgent kind of, of grandfather. But if there is a greater example of patience, kindness, forgiveness, perseverance, generosity, and compassion than the God that we meet in this book, I haven't met him yet. Maybe I just need to read more books because I'm stunned by the love that I meet in the God of the scriptures. One of the errors that people make frequently as they try and understand this book and God's character through it is to assume that because a particular behavior is uh, ascribed to a character in the Bible, then the God of the Bible or Christianity endorses that behavior. Uh, in the book of Judges, for example, um, which is the book from which a lot of the kind of worst examples of behavior, um, this bloodthirsty stuff gets taken, the actual attitude of God towards those atrocities can be summed up in the very last verse of the book of Judges, which reads, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the absence of a greater authority, everybody just did as they pleased and it was hellish and it was chaotic and it was violent and we know that it works this way. The Bible is weird and cruel in places because life and people are weird and cruel in places. The Bible gives us a window into the dysfunction of families and the corruptions uh, of the powerful. It shows us the selfishness of the rich and the superficiality of the religious and the shallowness of the mob. But the God we meet in the Bible is not responsible for this behavior. He frequently is challenging and condemning exactly that behavior. And when a journalist or a novelist or an historian uh, in our day, accurately depicts the atrocities of war or the abuse of children or the rape of the environment, we don't say what a cruel, tyrannical person that author is. We give him a Pulitzer Prize for telling it like it is. And the Bible tells it like it is. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the Bible shows us a world that is in need of saving and it displays for us the character and heart of a God who is the only one who can save it. Which brings me to the last question that people often have about the reliability of the Bible. Does the Bible still have anything to teach us? I mean, it, it's a really old book. How many books from college are you still regularly reading? You know, you got rid of them somewhere along the way probably. And if you still have them, they're just collecting dust someplace. Uh, so is the Bible, this is a very old book, still worth our time? Does it have anything to teach us modern people? After all, we've evolved so far. We've learned so much. 
Do we even have need for this book or its God any longer? Many people think about this. They say, gosh, we can come up with values all by ourselves. We don't, we don't need uh, the God of the Bible. Well, I've thought about that. I've thought about the values that I might come up with if I was left all to my own devices. Uh, what would I pick as my Ten Commandments, for example? We know what the Bible Ten Commandments are. Uh, we can read those. We know those very well. But here's what I might come up with as my alternatives. Uh, number one, first commandment, feel good about yourself. Feel very good about yourself, Dan. You can be your own God. That's much less pressure. I'd like to be my own God. And number two, be sure to watch American Idol or other celebrity programs uh, because they're extremely entertaining and uh, they show me celebrities that I would like to be like. Or number three, drop God's name casually often. Uh, it makes you sound cool. It's a good way of getting out your frustrations on the golf course. Uh, that would be my third commandment. Uh, number four, remember the Sabbath because it's a great day to get the shopping done and, uh, and, and other errands. Number five, honor your father and mother except when they're a pain because sometimes they are. Uh, number six, don't murder. Don't murder except in your mind. And some people just need killing in your head. Um, Number seven, have sex with a lot of partners because it's the way you play gene pool. It's the way you increase your influence. Number eight, don't steal. Do not steal except from the government or from God. Um, they can take it. Number nine, don't bear false witness unless you know you need to, unless you need to, to tell a lie. And number 10, covet whatever you want because it makes the economy strong. Those would be my 10. And I submit to you, those are the 10 that we have created, that we do so often live by in our world today. And I wonder how we think that's going for us. How is that uh, really working for us? Um, I think we can make our way through our life without this book. I think we can rely on our own internal conscience. I think God has given us this natural law. Uh, the scriptures say he has sown eternity into our hearts. He has uh, put his image and likeness in us. There, are, uh, there, there is this fingerprint of God's character in humanity across cultures and religions and time that, that lead us to some clarity about some of the big moral choices um, you know, there, that I think is helpful. Um, so we can, I suppose, trust ourselves to make our way effectively uh, through the world. But you know, our evolutionary instincts, these natural instincts we have, will probably never get around to telling us that the way of hope and healing in this world is not actually the survival of the fittest, but, but loving and pursuing our enemies. Uh, I don't think we'll ever come up with that idea by ourselves. Um, it won't tell us, natural law won't tell us that life in itself is sacred uh, and, and that we ought to protect the weak uh, even if they're unborn, even if they're inconvenient to us, even if they are not from our tribe, even if they bug us, we ought to, as a, as a species, be protecting the weak. Um, natural law does not tell us ever that male and female are of equal standing. 
or that people of every race deserve uh, equal uh, opportunity and, and reverence. Um, natural law doesn't make clear to us that freedom is not only America's gift to the world, it is God's intention for humanity. Uh, it is truly what God wants for all people. But if we look closely at this book, if we read the Bible carefully, the Bible will tell us those things. It will tell us many more very, very important things that are ideas, not just to be entertained, but, 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 but ideas for which we will be actually one day be held accountable when we stand before a very holy God, a God who is loving and wants to see everybody benefit from his purposes fulfilled. I'm a very slow learner. I have taken a long time to figure things out in life. I still make lots of mistakes, but I have figured out this much. I would be a much less effective, helpful, um, godly, um, healthy person if it were not for this book. Uh, I don't like this book at times. I, there are things that God says to me in this book that remind me of some of the other authorities in my life. I had an eighth grade English teacher that seemed to me relentless. He was always challenging me, pushing me uh, to do more, that I could, another edition of that, another draft of this. I, I could not stand that guy. Mr. Micah was his name. And then I had a guy, I, I had a coach in college, his name was Mike Vespoli. He was my, my freshman crew team coach. He pushed me to the point of exhaustion. I threw up in garbage cans trying to, to please that guy. I could not stand uh, what he said to me, I feel this way sometimes when I read the Bible. God is calling me to a higher standard. He's calling me to do things that the world doesn't do, that my peers might not choose to do. But when I look back over time, I realize I've become a decent writer because of that eighth grade teacher. And, and I got to row on the best rowing team in America because of that coach. And I'm a slightly better person than I might otherwise be because of the authority of God as he meets me here in the scriptures. So on a vastly more important level, this is, I think, what the psalmist felt when he said, oh, how I love your law and meditate on it all day long for your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It was what the Apostle Paul understood from his own personal experience when he wrote uh, to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman or child of God, in other words, you and me, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you have to decide for yourself, is the Bible reliable? Is it reliable enough for you to prize it? And I want to submit to you in closing that the only way you can know for sure is by actually doing what the psalmist commands, by actually reading it and reflecting on it, meditating upon it, obeying God's call through it, testing it for yourself. Will you make a new commitment to doing that in this year ahead? Don't start with the, the dietary laws of Leviticus. Start with the Gospels of the New Testament, okay? Begin in that particular place. And just watch how the teachings of Jesus and the apostles equip you more thoroughly 
for all of the good work God has for you to do uh, in this world. When I was a little child, uh, I attended a vacation Bible school, and they taught me a song. It was called the B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. They're that practical. Take hold of this word, love this law, meditate upon it, practice it, and you will discover just how reliable and life-changing is the word of God. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you for this gift of your revelation and for all that it offers to us of your light and your love. For great is your faithfulness. And we give you thanks now, this day, in the name of Jesus. Amen.